We leave behind our everyday concerns, the world of Kronos. We set aside our watches and turn off our phones. We don't count this time as ordinary, measured by the ticking of the clock. It's time for the Vinyl Crusade with your host, Mike Puskas, the man, the, the man, man with, with the, the man. man. Thank you very much. Joyful possibility becomes reality. Welcome, welcome once again to another episode of The Vinyl Crusade with your intrepid navigator, your host, Mike Puskas from The Seven Sense. And let me begin with a little housekeeping, if I may. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned into Spiritual Mysticism, the review and detailed understanding of the Led Zeppelin 4, the Four Sticks album. Um, I'm overwhelmed by the response. So, 
we're moving and it's great to be able to let everybody know that we have actually graduated from just the anchor platform which is where all this began and been approved by Spotify so yes you can go to your favorite Spotify and look up the Vinyl Crusade or just Vinyl Crusade and it should come up and on there I've decided to offer some additional bonuses so check that out as we go along so I'm just going to start by saying how we all feeling at the moment we're all being pretty much put through the uh, the eye of the needle at the moment and we're all feeling really pressured by the rather full-on and uh, intensified planetary transits that's befalling the human condition. Once again, Venus is still in retrograde, Pluto's in retrograde, Saturn's in retrograde, and of course we also have Neptune coming into retrograde and we also have um, uh, Mars beginning to square the, uh, the Sun and of course we just had the lunar full moon lunar eclipse in Sagittarius so people have been really forced to kind of go very very much within the dynamic of ultimately you know who they believe they are and why they're ultimately here on the planet right now exploring this particular life this particular incarnation if you like and I thought it would be a great opportunity to visit another incredibly groundbreaking and seminal album in that of none other than Alice Cooper and his album Billion Dollar Babies. Now, I thought the best way to kind of talk about Alice Cooper and the Billion Dollar Babies album was to talk about it from the perspective of how it really, really impacted me. And in order to do that, I really need to go back probably a year when Alice was really starting to rise to the peak of his macabre, his vaudeville, his theatrical expression, if you like, and came out with the incredibly unique and fresh schools out album one thing that the record industry which we did go into a little bit of detail with our overview about the advent of vinyl and more importantly the advent of the um, album and what the album ultimately was composited of and how it came together as a more defined overview of the vision of the artist presenting the music and I think that that's really, really powerful and quite palpable in so many ways. Now, when Schools, Schools Out came out, that particular album actually came in a, in a plastic, kind of a, a, a clear wrapping. And when you unfolded it, there were two like legs that folded outward, which created literally a school desk. And you could lift the front, the first half of the sleeve, upwards 
and it would open the desk and in the desk were things like a bit of sandwich and then there was a Swiss blade knife and and there was a pair of knuckle dusters and all the things that a young kid back in the 70s really felt to kind of somewhat identify you know who they were and of course the album took on a very more almost like Broadway style of expression you know with Gutter Cat versus the Jets and um, Alma Matter and uh, a number of the other tracks which really sort of created the pomp and ceremony of the time. Now while that was all going on we also had a very very interesting kind of mirror as it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. A new era was dawning for a deeply divided America, caught between the iron grip of conservative government and the leather glove of shock rock. And this shock rock was the precursor to then the glam era, which brought in groups like The Sweet and Slade and The Pretty Things and a whole bunch of other groups that epitomise that let's dare to be different, let's dare to be wild, let's, let's go out of our way to be as outrageous as we possibly can. Makeup, platform shoes, full body suits, leather, colour, ceremony. But the latter, this glove of shock rock, the latter courtesy of Alice Cooper, who was releasing Billion Dollar Babies on February 25th in 1973, was showing us a very new way of combining the theatre with the standard uh, pub sweat of the rock and roll dynasty that was emerging. Now, some three months prior to the release, Richard Nixon had soundly beaten Democratic challenger George McGovern to win his second term of office, which really, you know, if you break it down, shouldn't have happened. Thus, apparently confirming that America's right-wing majority desired nothing more than to sweep the late 60s with all of its human rights, conflagurations, counterculture, movements and political instability right under the woolly shag rug of history. Hmm, an interesting conversation to be had, but perhaps not for the Vinyl Crusade. They had clearly failed miserably at the polls back in November, but America's liberal youth soon cast their votes against conformity in record stores. Alice Cooper's band, sixth studio album, soared to the very top of the American charts and followed in short order in the UK. For the members of Alice Cooper, high school friends who had started out playing together as the Spiders, no, they weren't the Spiders of the Mars, Spiders of Mars, as Bowie so aptly put it in his 1974 album, Spiders of Mars, but rather kind of precursed all of that by playing nearly a decade earlier in the geographic backwater of Phoenix, Arizona. 
The climb out of obscurity to the top of the mountain was a long and arduous one indeed. And this is a good opportunity to bring in two very quintessential characters to the Alice Cooper story. One being none other than Frank Zappa and the second being Shep Gordon. Now, if you, anyone has seen what is known as the Mike Myers biopic on Shep Gordon, I can't remember the name just offhand, um, but certainly look it up. It's on Yiffy if you want to download it. Um, it's a really great foray into how anyone who had a really good idea or could help streamline a process of getting someone from obscurity to absolute fame and fortune would be listened to. Whereas today, now you've got to have credentials, you've got to go and get a degree, you've got to be able to prove that you'll do things and you'll do it for nothing, and then hopefully, eventually, you'll prove your worth and then the artist will recognise you, sign a contract, and then you'll get your 20%, your gratuity, for doing the ridiculous amounts of work. Back then in the early 70s, there was none of that. If you walked into a hotel room where you had Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison and a number of others, you know, Roger McGuinn and a couple of members of Crosby, Stills and Nash with a huge bag of weed, you were their best friend and you could communicate with them on a highly artistic and somewhat creative level. But not so more today. So Shep Gordon came along and he recognised that Alice was a hard-working, you know, middle-class type of uh, protagonist from the Detroit Steel era. You know, he knew the importance, he knew the labour of hard work. And that's all he wanted. He said, leave the rest to me. I'll find ways and means of being able to expose you so that you can effectively be drawn into a much wider net where your popularity will grow exponentially. On the other hand, we had Frank Zappa. So Frank Zappa was running straight records. And Alice's first real single that made any kind of impact was the song 18 off the Love It To Death album, which really spearheaded Alice's rise into more recognised popular culture, if you like. But after years of punishing Jews, paying and pair of commercially failed albums, for Frank Zappa's Straight Records, Alice Cooper, vocalist, that is Vincent Furnier, as he is properly known, guitarist Glenn Buxton and Michael Bruce, bassist Dennis Dunaway and drummer Neil Smith began their inexplorable infection of America's consciousness after joining forces with producer Bob Ezrin. And Bob Ezrin would have to be the third major quintessential character to join the fray at this point in time. Billion Dollar Babies proved the artistic and commercial culmination of their joint efforts 
surpassing the previous year's equally seminal number two charting schools out, which I spoke about, to reach Billboard's coveted number one spot on the strength of immortal singles like Elected and No More Nits the Nice Guy, which we will feature in their entirety. But most importantly at this stage was the advent that the theatrical had led to greater levels uh, on tour with more heightened audience participation. And this is really where I want to begin the journey because now what is going to happen, I'm going to read from Rolling Stone and what the protagonists at the paper kind of shoved under the, under the table, if you like, was this new level of emerging creativity from artists in the rock and roll genre. Concerning Alice Cooper, it is by now axiomatic that any new album is intended only as the soundtrack of the latest group travelling extravaganza. But even considered as a soundtrack, Billion Dollar Baby seems an abortion. The extended numbers, ones around which the stage skits revolve, are the most abrasive. Rather than following Cream's formula of presenting a tight skeleton on vinyl that can be expanded at will on stage, the Cooper Troopers insist upon acting this soundtrack concept out to the bitter end. So we get to hear large stretches of the band in total sonic disarray, while dentists drill raw in unfinished sweet, snakes hiss in sick things and guillotine blades drop in I Love the Dead and we give them the major zero to each song. Now I want to stop right there and simply focus on the short-sightedness of rock posturing journalists back then who were more about, you know, well, if it's not making the impact into mass appeal of any type, then really, where does it fit into the, the greater scheme of things? Well, I'll tell you, when we play this first track, Unfinished Sweet, and I am going to play it in its entirety because this particular song in my view, and remember, the Vinyl Crusade is my personal crusade. It's a personal journey into what I consider to be quintessential moments in my own musical evolution that I feel I would like to share with the world. You're on Magazine Radio, the Vinyl Crusade. We're listening to and dissecting to and becoming beholden to the magic of Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies. And this is Unfinished Sweet.
Unfinished Sweet by Alice Cooper from the Billion Dollar Babies album. What a classic track. And yet, six minutes in length and probably hated by the fraternity of the, of the music industry as a whole. And personally, I can't understand why. Can you? Unfinished Sweet demonstrated that there were so many opportunities to explore tempo changes. Let's reverse instrumentation out. Let's really, really explore all the possibilities of what it's like to meet my nemesis, in this case, Alice's nemesis, in the dentist chair while having a regular checkup and being told that, listen, your teeth's really good but your gums are absolutely all over the shop. Too much sex, drugs and rock and roll, if you don't mind. So he has to now go through the gruelling pain and the somewhat psychedelic, somewhat uh, introverted image that he generates while being under the influence of the Novocaine creates this sort of um, ethereal soundscape experience best reflected on Unfinished Sweet. Few people would have predicted, based on the band's first two albums, that Alice Cooper would become a dominant musical presence throughout the first half of the 70s. But beginning with their third record, 1971's Love It To Death, the group embarked on a creative run that secured their place among America's greatest rock bands. The quintet made deep inroads into rock radio, churning out pop anthems like School's Out, I'm 18 and Elected. Released on February 25th, 1973, Billion Dollar Babies marked the apex of the group's phenomenal rise, securing their place as a musical and cultural force. In other words, the reason why it made it into my choices on the Vinyl Crusade is this subversive album that challenged the very moral value or moral fibre of, of the zeitgeist got to number one and beat out so many incredible artists, the Rolling Stones, Cat Stevens, uh, Mark Boland and T-Rex and, and the list goes on. Now it can all be traced back to the song Caught in a Dream from the Love It to Death album, recalled Smith, who was a guitar player on the in the group. Speaking with this writer a few years ago for a piece published in Performing Songwriter magazine, quote, back then we were predicting our future and Billion Dollar Babies was that prediction come true. To go from a time when no one would pay a penny to see us having one of the biggest selling albums ever for that time, well, we certainly had the last laugh on that score. Listening to Billion Dollar Babies today, it's hard to imagine that even at that late stage, Alice Cooper was regarded by many as a mere novelty act. Sessions for the album began at the Galassi Estate, a Greenwich, Connecticut-based mansion purchased by the group following the success of their 1972 album, School's Out, for several songs. The group ran a microphone into an empty greenhouse 
built with marble floors and glass walls in order to capture a particular echo effect. Producer Bob Ezrin was central to the proceedings. I'm going to quote some of Bob's uh, uh, comments on this. A lot of different things went into the chemistry of the band. We had a lot of different tastes, so you got many different styles of music, and I think Ezrin contributed a lot to that chemistry as well. It's almost like what the Beatles had with George Martin. The combination really was magical and created a fusion of colour and really kind of infused the temperature of the record. Later the group travelled to England and gathered at London's Morgan Studios to work on additional tracks. A parade of rock stars converged on the sessions, but only one, Donovan, who believed to have shared vocals with Alice on the title song, Billion Dollar Babies, ended up appearing on the finished album. Dunaway regrets that others who were present, present including Harry Nielsen, Keith Moon of The Who, Mark Boland from T-Rex, and Flo and Eddie, aka Mark Volman and Howard Kalen of The Turtles, weren't fitted in somehow. Now this was very indicative of making records back then. If it was a stone session, there were so many people that kind of arrived in the daily entourage to have some fun, let down their hair, enjoy the eclectic experience of making an album with a famous rock band. And particularly women, then perceived as groupies, were very much at the high order of the day. So now what we're going to do is I want to just kind of keep things in a sort of a chronology here and I want to visit a track um, just medley at the moment because we don't want to get too stuck in making the whole show about playing all the tracks. I'm going to play the quintessential tunes that I really feel best embody the record. But remember what I said about Nixon being elected to his second term. This is elected from Billion Dollar Babies. And if you listen to the lyric, it truly does reflect exactly where Alice was thinking and where he was coming from when he penned this monster rock tune.
elected from billion dollar babies. And it was very, very interesting that at that particular time in 1974, when the original American pressing came out, and I heard that the album was coming out as a double gatefold sleeve, and inside it was none other than a $1 billion bill with the crazy man, Alice Cooper, in the center where George Washington would normally be. So they went to great pains to reflect the changing of the times. And I still remember getting that $1 billion bill, which was on a kind of a thick, almost like a, a greenback style paper, and showing my parents, you know, I think I was, um, I'm going to say I was probably about 14 or 15 at the time, and showing my parents and saying, look at this, this is really, really kind of showing the way that the youth are going to have their, their day in court, so to speak. It's, it's, it's our time. And I'm going to put it on the wall next to my favourite Olivia Newton-John poster from TV Week. Um, and my dad said, no, there's no way we're going to allow that. You know, and I kept saying, look, Dad, you know, I'm a teenager now and, and I, I, I want to rebel and I, I want to kind of, you know, buck up against the system and no one's going to see it unless they come to my room. And, you know, you don't like the cover because it's got a picture of a baby with Alice Cooper's characteristic makeup on there. And, Dad, you know I love this, this guy. I really, really relate to him. I, I resonate with him trying to be this... This theatrical Svengali. And finally, Mum came in and went, What's the big deal? It's a it's a it's an idiot lunatic rock star that Mike's gonna grow out of before you know it. As long as his two twin brothers underneath him don't get into this crap, then we're doing well. So, you know, I don't care. Let him have some blue tack and put it up. And that's exactly what I did. I ended up putting it up proudly on the wall and saying the changing face of rock and roll sets the standard for the changing face of popular culture. So now we're going to feature a track called Hello Hooray, which was kind of like, well, we've made it. We've, we've kind of paid our dues. We've done outrageous stuff to get the attention of the public and the industry at large. And here we are celebrating our arrival. You're on Magazine Radio, The Vinyl Crusade with your host, Mike Puskas, Billion Dollar Babies, and Hello, Hooray. Yeah! 
from the Billion Dollar Baby album. And that's a really powerful opening track in my book. It's an excellent opener. It starts off with some flashy guitar, piano and bass. Alice sings it really from his heart, really welcoming the listener to the album and proclaiming how he has been waiting forever to sing his song after so much dissension after being knocked down by the critics so many times and this is not too dissimilar to what happened with Rolling Stone and Classic Rock and NME and these other Melody Maker and the way that they trashed the first three to four albums of Led Zeppelin before they finally kind of tuned into the higher vibration of these records. This is exactly what was going on with Billion Dollar Babies and prior to that with Schools Out and then Love It To Death before that again. But he's been waiting forever to sing his song and at about three quarters through the song there is a really pretty blues guitar solo that accompanies the rest of the instruments very well. The song eventually gradually fades out into nothing and it really tells a kind of a telling, a knowing of there's really some powerful stuff to come. And following that will be Raped and Freezing. It's got some dark lyrics. It's here to tell a story of somebody who is chased into the Mexico desert, naked and freezing, probably after being raped, drugged, abused. Very similar to, again, reflective metaphors used to better understand what was taking place within the freedom of the culture at the time. And it picks up very nicely after Hello Hooray and once again has very good instruments with the guitar being incredibly prominent. A very catchy chorus picks up the song as well as some sparkly guitar solos. Alice Cooper's guitarist, through his incarnation over the course of nearly 35 plus years, all were picked because they had incredible prowess when delivering their melodic phraseology and their tonal delivery on the guitar. The drum interlude with cowbells followed by cheering near the end makes a very cool ending to a really well-structured song. And this very much brings us to one of my highlights of the album, and that being No More Mr Nice Guy. Alice was constantly under fire by his peers, by those that deemed him to be a protagonist of devil worship. He too followed the ideologies of the Alistair Crowley uh, occultist views and yet it was all rather playfully presented 
but because we were still somewhat conditioned into a pre-programmed understanding of what good Western civilization and culminating Christian ethics were presenting to us, we were still pretty much under the thumb of bureaucracy. And that was a real kind of a, a breakout opportunity with artists like Alice Cooper beginning to emerge. And there's a number of others that do sort of come to mind that kind of challenged the, uh, the very fabric of what was considered to be acceptable. Slade was a good example. Hush was a good example. Um, uh, there were so many, of course. You know, Mark Boland from T-Rex was, again, a great protagonist of the outrageous and what was definitely thought impossible made very possible on the stage and in his studio recordings. So you're on Magazine Radio, The Vinyl Crusade. Let's feature now the entire track, No More Mr Nice Guy, Alice Cooper.
Dollar Babies and before that No More Mr Nice Guy and what an incredible juxtaposition between two incredibly eclectic tracks, one with the pomp and ceremony that I'm not going to take it anymore I'm going to stand up for all those disenfranchised and all those disillusioned Luth and say that, listen we've done what we needed to do we've been good little boys and girls we've sat cross-legged in front of our our parents and our grandparents and our ancestral lineage and we've done the right thing but now we want to break out and we want to basically live life to the full and enjoy life the way that it was always meant to be. Now this is essentially very much an indication of what's to come and what's to come is a better understanding than anything you could ever imagine in knowing that despite the raucous atmosphere what emerged from the recording sessions was a collection of concise imaginative songs that tempered Alice Cooper's pre-dilection for the macabre with generous slabs of humour. Smith credits Bruce at the band's main composer, although he, Dunaway and Ezrin contributed significantly as well. Alice, of course, served as the band's primary wordsmith. Michael was the main musical writer in the band, although Dennis and I wrote as well, says Smith. Alice would help with melodies and some of the music, but his specialty was really the lyrics, the storyboards, the delicate glimpses into what was happening within the culture in, on any given day. In the case of No More Mr Nice Guy, Michael wrote the song and then Alice tweaked the lyrics and brought it very much into an introspective and somewhat subjective parody, mirroring his own life. 
But we worked in other ways too. Everyone in the band helped to arrange the songs. In the case of Billion Dollar Babies, featuring Donovan in the Q&A, in the call and response adjunct of the song, we had everybody lending a hand in the writing. This was a total and perfect example of collaboration at its finest among the band. Notwithstanding Billion Dollar Baby's macabre themes, Cooper took his lyrical cue from an unlikely source. Believe it or not, Alice Cooper's favourite lyricist was none other than Chuck Berry. When I first first heard something like Nadine or Maybelline, I understood those songs told a story. As the lyrics went along, you really got a picture of what was going on. He took the girl out, he couldn't get his seatbelt off, things like that. So it's a sort of a, a clumsy venture into adolescent expression and experience. But he always wanted to write three-minute stories that were funny, that had an underlying comical theme. And that was great in the way he juxtaposed that with his darker and more macabre, theatrical, Svengali approach as the twisted clown and ringmaster from the circus that really wasn't quite right. Rife with infectious melodies, catchy guitar riffs and sparkling wit, Billion Dollar Babies became Alice Cooper's most successful album. And I really know why. Revisiting it today, after probably not listening to it for at least maybe 12 years, it gave me an opportunity to remember what it was like to come home late, to shirk the responsibility of being a good little boy for our parents. I mean, there are so many stories that come to mind of where I was incredibly subversive as a young boy and also a burgeoning growing teenager, but this is probably not the right platform to discuss it openly. Some people might take offence. Well, the album topped the charts in both America and in the UK. The record also spawned four classic singles. You've heard Elected, Hello, Hooray, and No More Mr. Nice Guy. And of course, the title track, Billion Dollar Babies. In the wake of the album's release, the band undertook their biggest tour ever, playing more than 70 cities in three months and grossing over $4 million, a tremendous sum for a tout and a tour in those days. But this is where excesses became very much a reflection of Alice's future. The rigours of the road, the failing health of key member Glenn Buxton, who died in 1997, a few weeks shy of his 50th birthday, and a growing divide between Cooper, the singer, and the rest of the group were beginning to take a heavy toll. The band forged on to make one more album, 1974's Muscle of Love, But in the midst of a well-earned hiatus, 
Cooper opted to leave the group and pursue a solo career. So to a greater degree, Billion Dollar Babies harkens back to what it was to be a collective vision of a melding pot of ideas and ideals and hopes and dreams which had to work both on stage and off. Groucho Marx once said that Alice was the last great hope for vaudeville. Says Cooper, and that's what we were. Rock and roll burlesque at the highest frequency we could muster. At the same time, we were certainly sort of the dark side of that, but that was always our intention to be pure entertainers. Our targets were always sex, death and money. But there was never any agenda. We were just trying to sell ourselves as a really fun go-to destination if you wanted to escape the tirade of the everyday. We're now going to listen to what I consider a second favourite of the uh, on the album, and that's Generation Landslide. Many people have really not heard this song, as it was not released as a single. It foretells the apocalypse with some acoustic guitar and some great drumming. The chorus and the lyrics are very catchy, and this somehow very much reminds me of David Bowie's Space Oddity which had been released several years earlier, but the echoes of its impact across audiences around the world were still very much felt. Alice sounds very evil and sarcastic here, also providing a really cool harmonica solo near the finale of the song. You're on Magazine Radio, The Vinyl Crusade with your host Michael Puskas. This is Generation Landslide from Billion Dollar Babies.
Generation Landslide, Billion Dollar Babies, and the immutable Alice Cooper. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this particular instalment of uh, the Vinyl Crusade and our detailed dissection of what was happening in popular culture when Alice Cooper released his fourth studio album, 1973, and Billion Dollar Babies. We've looked at the way that he used the vision of what was taking place around him as a means of pinning his storyboards. Alice is the quintessential showman. Alice is anything but dull. Alice's music defies convention. It allows us to see beyond the veil of the amnesia that so many other rock and roll bands were trying to pull over our unsuspecting eyes. Now, I've been told that it's probably a good idea to let everybody know that these particular shows not only air here on Magazine Radio, but we have a blog, magazine.today, and if anybody would like to offer any kind of input as to what the next record should be, next vinyl masterpiece should be reviewed, please email me, Mike, dead famous, one word, at gmail.com. And in the subject title, Vinyl Crusade, and then a question mark, so I know that it relates to you presenting some idea of what you think would be good. 
I'm also looking for a couple of co-conspirators that may want to offer a little bit of a juxtaposition to the way we present each record, the way we dissect and present the songs, the music, the vision behind them. So once again, just email me at mikedeadfamous, one word, at gmail.com. Subject matter or subject uh, line, Vinyl Crusade, question mark, question mark. And if you want to even write down, you know, um, some ideas for a new show, for another show. Please follow me on Spotify. Just search The Vinyl Crusade. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of what I consider to be really, really important opportunities to review parts of our own history, our own musical journeyman experience and I'm going to leave you tonight with uh, an absolutely epitomizing track of the whole kind of bigger and darker picture that is Alice Cooper and this is I Love the Dead. Thanks for listening. Have yourselves a great weekend. dead before they're cold the blooming flesh for me to hold cadaver eyes upon me see nothing Farewells, no goodbyes. I never even knew your now rotting face. While friends and lovers mourn your silly grave, I have other uses for you, darling.
We leave behind our everyday concerns, the world of Kronos. We set aside our watches and turn off our phones. We don't count this time as ordinary, measured by the ticking of the clock. Hey, Kula Jinga, man, is that a joint, man? No, man, it's time for the Vinyl Crusade! With your host, Mike Puskas, the man, the, the man, man. With, with the man. man. Thank you very much. Joyful possibility becomes reality.